Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for ASHP's Advocating for Impact podcast, where every episode covers a policy issue impacting the practice of pharmacy. I'm Tom Krause, ASHP's Vice President of Government Relations. Usually these podcasts focus on one emerging policy issue affecting the practice of pharmacy. For today's episode, we're going to provide a lightning round of updates on policy issues we're tracking across Congress, regulatory agencies, and state legislatures. Joining me today are Jillian Schulte-Wall, ASHP's Senior Director of Health and Regulatory Policy, and Kyle Robb, ASHP's Director of State Advocacy. I'm going to walk us through a series of updates on legislative issues. That includes Medicare provider status, incident two billing for pharmacists, and eliminating the X waiver. Then Jillian's gonna walk us through regulatory issues, including 340B and the Supreme Court decision that recently came out affecting reimbursement for 340B hospitals, as well as FDA's EUA on oral antivirals for COVID-19 and opportunities to expand that EUA to include pharmacists as prescribers. And then finally, Kyle Robb is gonna take us through state policy updates. And those are gonna focus on white bagging, 340B non-discrimination and PBM bills, as well as state provider status. So with that, let's get into the discussion. I think a lot of you are familiar with um, our provider status uh, efforts. As you know, this, this past year, we've, we've narrowed our, our ask on provider status uh, to focus on issues relevant to pandemic response. We still support the broader uh, the broader provider status legislation that ASHP has supported for a long time. What we're trying to do is, if there is an opportunity for Congress to take up something that is related to pandemic response or preparing for the next pandemic, we want to make sure that they think of provider status as something that could be part of that um, broader pandemic response legislation. So that is the motivator for uh, this kind of narrowed focus of, of provider status. So the, the bill uh, that we are supporting is the Equitable Community Access to Pharmacist Services Act. There's a coalition of organizations that are supporting that bill. Maybe in the um, in a follow-up to this conversation, we can send you a link to that coalition if it's something that your organizations uh, might, might be interested in supporting. Um, several health systems have uh, signed a letter uh, supporting this legislation, and, um, and that's very helpful to have support coming not just from the pharmacy community, but from health systems, from patient groups, uh, and so forth. You know, we are seeing third-party organizations, kind of the, the, the coalition that is supporting the bill growing. The uh, congressional co-sponsors um, are, you know, are increasing, particularly in the House. So those are all good signals. You know, a challenge that we have will just be the timeline uh, for Congress, especially in an election year. You know, so we want to keep keep this on Congress's radar. We want to kind of push it, as I said, if there is a pandemic preparedness bill. Um, but I also want to want to you know be transparent that, that this is not a slam dunk, right? This is a um, you're trying to make the case about why this is relevant, um, but it's not um, it's not going to be an automatic thing that because it's a narrower um, bill, Congress will take it up. You need to make sure that it's part of the conversation as they're um, planning for for a pandemic response. Another area that is related to provider status, but distinct is reimbursement for evaluation and management services. So you may be aware that a few years ago, CMS indicated that 
um, physicians could no longer bill for services provided by pharmacists that were complex evaluation and management services. So they could bill for the lowest level code, 99211, but not 99212 through 215, which is frankly where a lot of the ambulatory care pharmacy services would fall in those higher level codes if you're having a complex visit with a patient. So that's very challenging because it creates, uh, you know, it creates a financial barrier to um, leveraging pharmacists to provide uh, those services within the health system. So we want to we want to work with the physician community um, to uh, to see if we can get a legislative fix to this. We have been hopeful that we could get CMS to fix this administratively. They have declined. They feel that they do not have um, authority to do this. So we are working on a legislative proposal. We are working with. Uh, GTMRX to get the Medications Right Institute and and their their participants and we we're hoping that while provider status has unfortunately run into headwinds from the physician community we don't think that that would be the case with clarification of this incident to billing for evaluation and management codes because this is about this is this is purely about team based care the ability of the physician to leverage the 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 pharmacists on their care team to provide care and generate revenue for, for their practice. So we hope that that is viewed by the physician community as, as you know, fully aligned with, with their goals. So more to come on that, but that is an area where we are going to be developing um, a legislative solution and would love to work with you on that. Uh, in the past, several health systems have worked with ASHP to voice support for fixing this uh, um, this incident to billing for evaluation and management services issue. And so I think that's likely something that would resonate with, with health systems. Another area that uh, actually has been advancing just in the past, um, in the past day is eliminating the X waiver for treatment of opioid use disorder. So uh, this has been an advocacy issue for pharmacists and, and ASHP for a long time. For those folks who've participated in, in Policy Week at ASHP, you'll know that this is something that we have raised with Congress for a couple of years now. So the X waiver is a, um, a federal limitation on who can order medications for opioid use disorder, including buprenorphine. The challenge with that is it identifies particular clinicians who can qualify and pharmacists are not listed among them. So that is a challenge. And it, for the broader clinician community, it's also a challenge because it places limitations on the number of patients that they can serve with medications for opioid use disorder and creates a whole series of, of training requirements. So we have been supporting something called the Mainstream Addiction Treatment Act, which would eliminate that X waiver requirement. The great news is uh, just last night, uh, the House of Representatives passed that bill uh, as part of a broader mental health uh, package. So that is very encouraging. There is similar legislation on the Senate side um, that, that we are uh, advocating to, to see passed. Um, you know, we're, we're hopeful that that will happen. I'm, I'm hopeful that the Senate will take up some version of the um, this mental health legislation and, and, and this could be something that they include in it. Just for your awareness, there's also legislation that passed that um, promotes transparency for PBMs. And that's something that we have supported um, and we were happy to see passed. There's also a, 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 a version of that legislation from Senators Cantwell and, and Grassley that, um, that exists on the Senate side, which we also support. So 
we were excited to see some of those items pass. If you receive our government relations update emails, you should have seen a, a breaking news about that. So I think that's all headed in the right direction. Um, I think uh, uh, one thing to just keep in mind with regard to the um, X waiver, eliminating the X waiver would not automatically mean that pharmacists are eligible to order medications. It would, you know, in that instance, it would then default to whatever your state scope of practice or state collaborative practice laws are. And Kyle may uh, correct me when he when he jumps on, but I think there are 10 or 11 states um, that would allow pharmacists to order medications for opioid use disorder um, if the X waiver were removed. I think the other, the good thing, it sort of positions us to be able to go advocate uh, in states if it were removed. It's very hard to advocate for this authority in states now because there is a federal barrier that would would sort of necessarily prevent us from ordering these medications. So it opens the door for a scope of practice expansion um, at the state level. Um, so that's that's a quick um, legislative update. I want to turn to Jillian Schulte-Wall. Um, many of you know Jillian. She is our regulatory leader. So anytime FDA, I'm sorry, anytime uh, ASHP is engaging with federal agencies like the FDA or CMS or DEA, Jillian uh, is one of, uh, of the sort of go-to people for that effort. So she's going to provide a little update on what's going on with 340B. You may be aware that there was a, a significant Supreme Court decision uh, on that topic. And I think she'll be able to tell us a little bit about the, um, the EUA for oral antivirals, which we see as another priority area. So with the Supreme, we'll start with 340B in the Supreme Court decision. And that was last Thursday on the 15th. Um, the case name, in case you really want some light reading, is um, AHA versus Becerra. Um, so this was a case that the, the hospitals kind of brought jointly over the CMS cuts that were instituted in 2018. And this was dropping the reimbursement only for 340B drugs and Part B for hospitals and health systems down from ASP plus six to ASP minus 22.5% plus the 10% for sequester, so about ASP minus 33%, all in. Um, so the, the ruling in the decision was fairly narrow. What CMS did is they looked at the statutory language, and the statutory language um, requires that CMS, before it makes a payment cut, conducts a survey of actual acquisition costs. Well, CMS had not done this, and they said, well, they could do it anyway. They had the authority to just adjust rates up and down as they needed to, and, and the court looked at the plain language of the statute and said, no, actually, you do have to do a survey of actual acquisition costs. So there's some good news here. The first good news is that CMS did get a little slap on the wrist from the court, which is nice to see because generally agencies are treated with a huge amount of deference. So um, this is going to be really interesting to see how the next bit of it plays out. One of the things that happened during the pandemic, and I know in all of the things that have gone on, this probably has kind of fallen off folks' radar, but CMS did try to conduct a survey of actual acquisition costs during that time period. They got a very, very small response rate because people had no bandwidth to do any kind of responses to surveys at that time. And it was a fairly intensive survey process that would have taken a, a fair amount of time for folks to do. So CMS is sitting on that. And what they can do is say, okay, well, we conducted this AAC survey in 2020, and we're going to use it to justify keeping these rates low. However, the good news is here that CMS is, and because CMS did not win the case, when the case gets remanded, the lower court is going to have to look at how to remedy the overcharges, essentially, that CMS received from 
uh, hospitals and health systems. So those payments they should have gotten, um, that 22.5%, that should go back to hospitals and health systems. How that's going to happen is sort of the big mystery. There was um, some regulatory some regulatory back and forth about this a couple of years ago, but there was no resolution. The, the kind of takeaway from all of this is the next steps are watching to see what CMS does in the outpatient prospective payment system rule. That's due out any day now. There may be some flags there as to how CMS wants to move forward. If they're either going to back off of trying to cut 340B or if they're going to take a smaller stab at it, or if this is going to be an announcement of a full survey of the AAC. So those are the three things we're kind of watching right now. But regardless, Regardless, there will be some sort of remedy for the overcharges at some point. However, given this is litigation, it may take a number of years, unfortunately. It's going to cover, definitely going to cover 2018 and 2019 when litigation started. Because the cuts have been in effect all this time, I anticipate that it's going to cover 2020, even though they did the survey in 2020 for actual acquisition costs, because it was such a problematic survey and their process was really not great. I, that's going to be challenged if they try to do it. If you know, CMS could try to do that, but I think in theory, it'll probably cover the entire time period from 2018 to the present. And then CMS is going to have to make a decision about how to move forward. But that's, that's kind of the lay of the land right now around the litigation. And now I'll kind of move over to the EUA. So as many of you are probably... Before yeah. you move on, thank you. So that was a great uh, summary. One thing that I just want to flag is this litigation that 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 Jillian was mentioning is separate from the litigation regarding 340B contract pharmacies. That is a separate stream of litigation um, with actually, and, and there's a separate agency involved. That's not CMS. That's uh, HRSA. Uh, we have been working with HRSA, as many of you know. We were we. Um, submitted an amicus brief to the court with regard to some of these cases. HRSA is actually supportive of our position of, you know, not, not, not allowing manufacturers to impose limitations on, on contract pharmacy and actually took some enforcement action against manufacturers, but then the manufacturers sued HRSA and those cases are now playing out in court. So I just want to make sure that folks are aware that there is still that separate stream of, of litigation with regard to um, contract pharmacy. Thanks, Joanne. Sorry for interrupting. Oh, no problem. It's actually a really good point. So this is just the, the Supreme Court decision really only covers the CMS side of the aisle. There's still a lot going on in the manufacturer side of the aisle on 340B. So everything Tom just referenced sort of falls into the manufacturer side of things. And unfortunately, that's an ongoing, also an ongoing area of work for us. So uh, kind of segueing from 340B to the EUA, the issue here is that when the COVID antiviral EUA was approved, there was a small note in the EUA that the only prescribers who were going to be allowed are going to be um, physicians, PAs, and nurse practitioners. This is incredibly unusual for an FDA EUA. When we were looking at it, we couldn't think of another example of this happening. EUAs aren't used that often, so there's not necessarily a whole lot of really effective comparators uh, available, but at the same time, it really does limit how the antivirals can be dispensed. And what we're hearing is that there has been a lot of trouble for people in terms of accessing the medications because of the time limitations, the five-day limit. Um, and also because a lot of people don't have access to NPs, PAs. And then even if you do have one, you still have to go and get your medication at your pharmacy. So this is an area where we really have been pushing back with FDA to try to get them to rethink how they have phrased this in the EUA. They have not committed to anything. 
I think they may just be trying to run out the clock until the, the antiviral rules are actually formally approved. And then we would anticipate that, that language around prescriber limitations would be removed. However, we don't have a guarantee that's going to happen. And I think the concern that we really have here is we don't want to see FDA taking these steps to kind of limit clinician practice, uh, particularly when they're not evidence-based. There was no evidence cited for the, the limitation on the prescriber types. So that discussion with FDA has been ongoing. We've also raised it with the White House. Um, this is something that we've really brought to the attention of the COVID response coordinator in part because now that the feds are rolling out these test-to-treat locations, they could have avoided a lot of this if they had simply allowed pharmacists to order and administer and, to order and dispense, um, not to have that limitation. You know, you wouldn't have had to build federal facilities to do these test-to-treat things if you just used the facilities you already had in place. So that's sort of the kind of ongoing discussion we've had with them at this point. There is a sign-on letter uh, that ASHP is coordinating for hospitals and health systems around this to push back on, on the EUA limitations. So um, I think David can probably share that with y'all if you haven't seen it yet, but we would definitely invite sign-on from everyone's hospitals and health systems. Yeah, and one of the, the things that we try to emphasize in that letter to, to bring a unique um, health system perspective is, is emphasizing that you know, in many cases, pharmacists, either through a delegated protocol or health system privileging, will have the ability to do things like modify a prescription. And that's particularly relevant for the oral antivirals because based on patient renal function, you may need to uh, provide the alternate uh, dosing for those medications, or for, at least for, for Paxlovid. Um, so that's a kind of an example of how that that limitation in the EUA actually disrupts the ability of, of health systems to leverage their pharmacy staff to execute things uh, like modific modifications of, of prescriptions. Okay, thank you so much, Jalan, for the, uh, the regulatory update. We're going to jump to states. There's There's been an enormous amount of progress across the states. So Kyle's challenge will be to cover as much of this as possible in like 10 minutes. Okay. So, uh, and then we can, we can reserve more for the, uh, the conversation, but there's a lot of content that, that we're going to go through. So, all right, Kyle. Let's, uh, let's start the lightning round. Um, I just hit a couple of highlight uh, areas uh, that I want to sort of brief everybody on. Uh, so the first one is our state progress in white bagging. Uh, to understand the, the effective policy options for white bagging, it really helps to think about why pairs want a white bag uh, and how they require that within the existing regulatory framework. Uh, so th the primary motivator at this point for pairs of white bag is really to steer reimbursable services to their affiliate entities. If you look at market research on PBM revenue uh, over the last five to 10 years and how that's changing, you'll see the amount of money that they make from spread pricing and retention of rebates is shrinking. And the amount of money that they're making from specialty pharmacies and pharmacy DIR or pharmacy fees is increasing. Uh, so this is really just part of their larger plan to pivot revenue towards specialty pharmacy related areas, specifically by requiring coverage of all high dollar drugs through uh, affiliate entities that they also own. Uh, secondarily, it's also an option, it's also an ability for them to shift costs on the providers uh, to increase their leverage in uh, getting price concessions from manufacturers uh, and to tighten their controls on drug utilization. Uh, so again, just to, to highlight the whole affiliate steering thing, uh, all of the PBMs listed collectively account for 97% of covered lives in the United States. Uh, so you can see there's a lot of vertical relationships there. 
so how do payers go about implementing white bagging? Uh, it's sort of a two-pronged strategy. The first one is they have deemed buy-in bill not medically necessary in the context of non-acute care. Uh, basically, their position is since you can acquire these drugs via mail order pharmacies, it is therefore not medically necessary for a hospital to direct purchase it in the context of non-acute care. Uh, the other pillar of their strategy for implementing white bagging is to uh, exploit gray areas and lack of definition of specialty pharmacy. So basically, the lack of standard definition of specialty pharmacies and specialty drugs means that in many cases, payers get to unilaterally define those terms uh, so they can do it in self-serving manners. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people are very familiar with manipulation of the, the uh, inclusion, uh, network inclusion uh, criteria for specialty pharmacies. They can oftentimes manipulate these to uh, make it so only mail order affiliate pharmacies are the only pharmacies that are included in their specialty pharmacy networks. So how do we go about uh, combating payer efforts to implement white bagging? So ASHP uh, released five key elements of effective white bagging policy last year. Uh, these consist of creating a statutory definition of clinician-administered drugs uh, that will separate them, uh, non-self-administrable drugs from self-administrable drugs when creating policies, prohibit payers from wholesale excluding buy and bill and classifying as not, not medically necessary, as we mentioned, prohibit payers from excluding uh, any basically any pharmacy that is able to acquire a drug that is lawfully uh, able to dispense the drug uh, that they and it is a covered drug within their network. They have to allow that pharmacy to dispense the drug again pr to prevent them from narrowing networks. Uh, and we also want them to prohibit required brown bagging, home infusion, uh, or alternative sites of care uh, to, to ensure that you know they wouldn't use those as alternatives. Secondarily, there are a number of other things that can be done to tamp down on the incentive for white bagging. So one would be uh, creating a ban on reimbursing affiliates more than non-affiliates. Uh, again, this could uh, dampen some of the incentive to steer towards affiliates. Again, looking into network adequacy requirements, making sure that uh, all that they can't require a drug be covered exclusively via mail order pharmacy or via one of their affiliates. Uh, and looking into how can you more formalize the definitions of specialty drugs and specialty pharmacy to uh, avoid manipulation and exploitation of the, the lack of clarity in those terms. So uh, since 2021, we've seen a lot of legislation around the, uh, the uh, uh, focused on white bagging. Uh, so to various degrees, uh, states have uh, have proposed laws and uh, various states have actually passed laws. Uh, I'm going to highlight specifically the Vermont bill because the Vermont actually went the furthest in terms of uh, doing a comprehensive ban on white bagging. Uh, so this bill prohibits use of mail order only as a condition of coverage. It prohibits requiring white bagging or brown bagging as a condition of coverage for any drug. Uh, and it also says that they can't do anything to increase patient cost sharing uh, if they choose not to engage in white bagging or they don't go through affiliates. Just just one thing before we before we move on, um, I do want to flag that, um, as Kyle mentioned, there is ASHP has put out some sort of key elements of white bagging legislation. We also put out model legislation that can be used in a given state. All of the state affiliates are aware of that. Uh, those those resources, um, but if you want to access them, we can we can certainly send you a link to those uh, resources. What we've found to be most impactful in advancing this uh, at the state level is when health systems and the state uh, hospital association and uh, the ASHP affiliate and the um, you know, on, oncologists in a given state when they all work together as a coalition. So um, we can uh, we can certainly share the the legislative proposal, but I think that the the main takeaway um, is there a way to get my health system engaged in this and and for them to encourage 
the state hospital association and others in the community to engage as a coalition to advance this legislation because ultimately that's what you know that's what we've seen be successful thanks kyle go ahead okay uh the vermont bill also includes a 340b non-discrimination which we'll we'll talk a little bit more about 340b non-discrimination it includes the ban on affiliate reimbursement uh, so again, it, it includes a lot of the, uh, the principles that we have here. So uh, the Tennessee bill here, the Tennessee actually passed two different laws, neither of which is explicitly a white bagging bill, but when taken all together, uh, we are, is our interpretation should ban white bagging. Uh, so in 2021, they said uh, they passed a law that basically said you have to make uh, all drugs available at any contracted pharmacy uh, of the patient's preference that includes specialty drugs. Uh, they then added additional sections to that law this year which sort of further codifies uh, that not only do they have to, to make them available from contracted pharmacies, but they also have the right to choose their provider of choice and that they uh, have to allow and sort of made it more explicit that they have to allow any pharmacy that is lawfully able to dispense a drug uh, to dispense that drug, including special drugs. And they also have to uh, allow all pharmacies to participate in networks if they want to. Uh, we had two additional bills. These were not specifically white bagging bills, but they will have uh, impacts on white bagging bills in these states. The West Virginia bill uh, addressed specialty drug issues by saying that payers may not unreasonably designate covered drugs as specialty drugs uh, and include the reimbursement of uh, the affiliate reimbursement component. Uh, the Nebraska bill addresses the specialty pharmacy issue by saying that basically if a pharmacy is in the contracted network uh, and it is accredited as a specialty pharmacy, then they must be included in the specialty pharmacy network too as well. All right, a quick uh, update on 340B non-discrimination. Everybody should be mostly aware with this, but uh, just a quick refresher. Discriminatory 340B reimbursement is basically when a payer tries to argue that because a 340B institution purchases drugs at a discount, therefore the payer should be able to reimburse them less. However, this is counter to the, uh, the intent of the 340B drug program, uh, which specifically says that the, uh, the savings, uh, the cost savings are to be realized by the covered entity themselves and not by other people in the supply chain, such as payers. Uh, so this is just some examples of how they could go about discriminating against 340B uh, entities. Really, the takeaway here, right, is that payers try to pay 340B entities less uh, because they are 340B entities, and we want them to, to stop that from happening. So we've seen a good number of states pass legislation around 340B non-discrimination. We're approaching halfway. Uh, a lot of the earlier laws around this just simply said payers can't discriminate against 340B entities without actually defining what discrimination is. A lot of the newer laws are a lot more specific about the specific uh, activities that payers cannot engage in. Uh, there is also the issue around modifiers. Uh, so uh, a lot of these laws explicitly ban plans from requiring the addition of modifiers on claims to identify whether a drug was purchased 340B or not. Um, ASHP is currently working on model legislation around this uh, that will take into account the previous state laws. Uh, that will allow people who are in states that are currently blank on this map uh, to have a sort of roadmap to go from when trying to enact this legislation. And for people who uh, are in the states that are colored in this map, it will give them something to assess their current state law against as a sort of gold standard to see uh, if that law needs to be sort of uh, updated or refreshed or readdressed to make sure there aren't any loopholes that could be exploited. Very quick update, real quick before I wrap up. Uh, we want to do an uh, update on pharmacist provider status in the states. Um, all this is to really say that states have been driving pharmacist provider status because, unfortunately, we still have yet to, to get that in the Medicare program. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has really seen a, a heavy reliance on pharmacists to provide more uh, clinical services uh, and respond to public health needs. So this is a great opportunity uh, to increase the pharmacist position as, a, as providers. 
Uh, we recently saw an announcement from CMS that uh, all states uh, that says all states must enroll uh, any PrEP Act covered provider of, of PrEP Act services, which would include pharmacists. Uh, they must allow all of those providers to enroll uh, as Medicaid providers uh, and have access to certain billing codes. Uh, some of the billing codes that are included are standalone counseling that, that does not even involve actual administration of a, of a vaccine uh, during the same encounter. Uh, so while this is a narrow subset of services, as Tom was sort of talking about with the provider status bill, this is still a, a major opportunity for pharmacists to sort of get into these uh, into these credentialing processes and these provider enrollment processes. Uh, and once that sort of infrastructure is built out, hopefully that will uh, lend to pharmacists being uh, reimbursed for a broader set of services. So this is a, a quick summary of where we're at in terms of state laws and provider status. We've definitely made a lot of progress in the recent years. Uh, I think that includes my lightning round of updates. I'll pass it back to Tom. Thank, thanks, Kyle. That was, that's, that was great. Um, just just uh, one thing I just want to mention is that, you know, as Kyle said, we're, we, uh, I think it's, it, is, it is really um, noticeable, the shift in tone, particularly at, among state policymakers with, uh, regarding pharmacists, both with regard to reimbursement and with regard to um, scope of practice. Um, I think this map tells that story. Uh, as Kyle mentioned, this Medicaid um, requirement to enroll pharmacists for for vaccine related services is really important. And the reason it's it's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, if we get pharmacists enrolled now because of this CMS requirement, it reduces the the, the sort of burden. Um, and the, the, like the friction in the system to expanding Medicaid provider status for other services, right? When, when states evaluate the cost of, of giving pharmacists provider status for Medicaid, one of the costs that they look at is the cost of enrolling pharmacists. If we can get over that hurdle, we sort of, we, we, we tamp down on that particular barrier, right? And so, and we also set a precedent as pharmacists providing not just vaccination, but also counseling. So that I think is really important. And it's, and it's a reason that we I should really uh, encourage pharmacists to get enrolled in their state uh, Medicaid programs. And, and, and you may say, this is, this may not be relevant for me. I'm not, you know, I'm not engaged in, in vaccine vaccination or vaccine counseling, but for the reasons I was just mentioning, it actually is beneficial for pharmacists to enroll, even if it's not what you, uh, you know, would, would normally engage in. And then I guess the other thing to just kind of keep in mind is vaccination is not the only um, service authorized under the PrEP Act. Testing is also, um, testing for flu and COVID is also authorized, uh, as is COVID treatment. And those are all mandatory benefits under Medicaid. So what we've also done is asked the Medicaid program at CMS to consider providing similar guidance to states to say, hey, if you're gonna require that states reimburse for these vaccination services, by that same logic, shouldn't you also require that they reimburse for those other services that were both covered but for pharmacists in the PrEP Act and mandated services, uh, mandated benefits under the Medicaid program. So we're hopeful that we'll make progress expanding um, what, what states are covered or are, are required to cover. Um, thank you to Kyle and Jillan for those updates, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today for this Roundup edition of ASHP Advocacy Topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. 
be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.